not only are they responding to the strikes, but they're also responding to the fact that Barbie has has boosted their bottom line for the year. Unfortunately, like you mentioned, that doesn't mean a lot to exhibitors who wanted that foot traffic. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition. And in this week's episode, we have director Antoine Fuqua, the filmmaker behind the Equalizer series, talking about the latest installment in that franchise, The Equalizer 3, coming out this weekend in theaters. But before that, we've got a big rundown of the latest news and happenings here in Theatrical Exhibition. In our panel this week, we've got Box Office Pro Chief Analyst Sean Robbins and Box Office Pro's Jesse Rifkin coming in to talk about everything in the world of Theatrical Exhibition. And we've also here on the edit, uh, Chad Kennerk who joins us, uh, you know, occasionally in the discussions. He's also going to be sharing some insights about his trip to the movies on National Cinema Day because that's how we're starting, guys, coming off of the second annual National Cinema Day that took place last Sunday. I didn't go. I am house-locked. I don't know what the term is, but I'm stuck at, at home with a very young infant that my wife gave birth to very recently. It's fun. It's nice. I like it. I don't get to go to the movies that often. Let's start with you, Chad. Uh, you're going to be doing the edits for this episode, but you mentioned you actually saw a new release this weekend on National Cinema Day. I went to a Metropolitan Theater's location and saw Gran Turismo and IMAX. And I went to a 10 a.m. screening and it was almost full. So it was so no, nice to see. On yeah. Sunday. So people just yeah. came out, IMAX, almost full packed house. Wonderful. Concession station was hopping. It was good. <laughs> Brunch <laughs> at the Metropolitan in Colorado. I love it. Sean, you also did an IMAX screening, unless it was standard this time around. You mentioned last week you wanted to go see Oppenheimer taking advantage of that $4 ticket. Uh, how did your experience go on National Cinema Day? Yeah, it was great. Uh, I managed to get tickets to the 70 millimeter IMAX. Very lucky to have that in Nashville at, at the Regal Opry Mills. Second time going there, fourth time seeing the movie. Similar to Chad, I, I went to a 10 a.m. showing, completely sold out. Uh, I mean, it just, I don't know, it did my heart well to see so many people at the movie theater That's at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. 70 millimeter, wonderful. That, it's, it's a good way to support celluloid. I know that the celluloid screenings have done rather well for this film. I also got to see, uh, what was it, a licorice pizza from P.T. Anderson. That came out a year and a half ago or so, uh, also on film. I saw that at the AMC Lincoln Square. It's always good to see, uh, you know, analog screenings make their way back. Jesse Rifkin, you didn't go to the movies on Sunday because you were working with me uh, on the box office numbers about National Cinema Day on National Cinema Day, but you did go to the movies this weekend. What did you catch? Yes, I went on Friday, not at 10 a.m. like my colleagues. <laughs> I did see Golda, which is the new war drama film about uh, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir in the early 70s. And actually, our colleague Chad actually interviewed the director for that film. So it was great to read that interview before seeing the movie itself gave me a little more insight. So thanks for that. And that interview is up on boxofficepro.com. Chad, that was an interesting conversation you had with the filmmaker. What were some of the most interesting aspects of that discussion? Because this is, I think, a collaboration between Bleecker Street and Fathom Events bringing this movie to theaters. Yes. Uh, you know, the most interesting thing for me was rather than it being a biopic covering her whole life, that it really honed in on this one incident and kind of getting to see the personal and the political come together. Very interesting. 
Yeah, it's it's always great to have these conversations with the filmmakers and and then get to go out and, and catch the film uh, afterwards, especially working in a publication like this. Talking about filmmaker interviews, my interview with Antoine Fuqua, the filmmaker behind The Equalizer 3 opening this weekend, is coming up on the second half of this episode. But before we get into it, uh, we do have to run over some news here, guys. On the new segment here this week, we are opening with Lionsgate and STX striking a deal to work together for domestic distribution of their films. They've closed this partnership. It's going to start with the October 6th release of The Marsh King's Daughter. Uh, Sean, this is an interesting uh, collaboration here between two specialty outfits. Uh, We've been talking about this for a bit, how it was really unfortunate how the pandemic came and stole a lot of potential from STX. It was really gaining traction with some mid-range hits. They had the Bad Moms uh, series. What was that movie with J-Lo? With, uh, we, we'll call them exotic dancers. Was that wonderful? Hustlers. Hustlers. Yeah. It, really unfortunate that, that STX had that happen really as they were taking off. But now it looks like their entire slate is going to hit theaters through Lionsgate. What's your take on this development? I think it's an interesting partnership. Obviously, Lionsgate has has had an interesting year with John Wick and a few other films, Jesus Revolution. They kind of filled in that niche of a mini major studio, so to speak. I mean, I, I think it's often they've had years where they certainly compete with the top studios, but they haven't had those major franchises like they used to have Twilight and Hunger Games for a while. So I think, and you mentioned STX having done the the Bad Moms series and and going into the pandemic with something like Hustlers, they really showed their potential to grow as a distributor. So the two of them working together, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what comes out of it. Yeah, I think it's positive news getting more titles out there because as we will talk about shortly, there's been a couple of changes here on the schedule that are making a lot of us uneasy. Warner Brothers announcing some major changes for Q4 and for next year. We'll be going into that shortly. Uh, Moving on here in the news segment, Reading is opening its first Angelica Film Center location in Australia. That'll be opening in the city of Brisbane. It's going to be its first Angelica Film Center outside of the United States since 1989. For all of those into specialty exhibition, Angelica Film Center is a reference in the second opening its first location in New York City Soho neighborhood. And it's been, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, that was the first cinema I visited here in New York City. I went to watch, I believe it was Woody Allen's Anything Else. They have an auditorium right above the subway. So there's like a mini D-box feeling every seven minutes as the trains pass under you. I see, Chad, you're on mute. You're laughing back there. I know you appreciate the joke. You you had had to have been there, right? Well, when you lived here in New York City? Yes, definitely. An amazing location and also uh, a great place to catch things that you can't catch at other venues. Yeah, uh, some of my favorite movie-going experiences here in the city have been there. I remember watching uh, Derek Chin Francis' uh, Blue Valentine and just bawling my eyes out on the third row. And it's always good to see that the specialty sector is growing now with an Angelica Film Center location going to Australia. Talking about the specialty sector, we've got new board members at Art House Convergence, which has uh, really been relaunching, retooling after 2020. And that's an ex- exhibition trade group representing a lot of the mission-based and nonprofit cinemas 
in the specialty space here in North America. The new board members from Art House Convergence are Colby Airy from Dreamland Tulsa in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Beth Barrett from SIF in Seattle, Washington, Liana Bender from the California Film Institute over in San Rafael, California, friend of the podcast, Logan Crow from the Frida Cinema in Santa Ana, California, Kimmel Freer from Indie Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee, and Lex Sloan from the Roxy Theater over in San Francisco. And the last bit of news here this week is a new renovation currently underway from B&B Theaters, one of the largest chains in North America. They are doing a full renovation of their Portland, Texas location, adding all of the bells and whistles here. Guys, we've got a B&B Theaters grand screen PLF auditorium opening in that location. They're bringing in the Panoramic Screen X auditorium. They've got that screenplay concept when you've got like a play area for children to go run and round in in the middle of a movie. They're putting that in there. Something here called Max Relax. First time I hear of this from B&B Theaters, that is an auditorium with extra wide leather chase lounge seating. And then finally, an auditorium known as The Lyric, which is designed as a rentable venue for private events. That is coming over in Portland, Texas. It is expected to be completed by the fall. So we are excited to see the new grand reopening of that B&B Theaters location when we get into that fall season. But now let's go into the box office analysis part of the episode. Starting with Jesse Rifkin, you wrote the article this Sunday. We're looking at numbers. It took us a little bit longer than usual to get this out because crunching the numbers here on what Sunday, National Cinema Day, meant to the industry, $4 tickets, all participant locations in North America, all tickets, all auditoriums, all movies. What are the biggest takeaways here from the market that we saw on Sunday, Jesse? Well, traditionally, Sunday is the lowest grossing day of the weekend below Friday and Saturday. This past weekend, though, it was the opposite. It made more than Friday or Saturday. Here's a stat for you. This past weekend, Sunday earned 38% of the weekend box office. By comparison, the weekend prior, Sunday only earned 28% of the week. So it's a big swing here for National Cinema Day, and that's even with the discounted tickets. In terms of admissions, of course, this is a massive overperformance. And we also saw the positive impact there uh, carry on to some of the films playing, whether it's a new release like Gran Turismo or Holdovers. Jesse, how did it look in terms of box office for the weekend as a whole, considering that Sunday every movie made $4 per admission? Yeah, well, it carried over for the whole weekend in terms of films performing really well. At least half a dozen holdover films had their mildest weekend decline to date, including both parts of the Barbenheimer duo, Barbie and Oppenheimer, which only fell uh, 19% and 16% respectively. But also Dead Reckoning, Mutant Mayhem, Haunted Mansion, Dial of Destiny, they all experienced their lowest and mildest weekend decline in their entire releases so far this past weekend. Hey, those are great numbers here coming in from National Cinema Day. And we do have to talk about what that impact is going to look like in this coming frame. Sean, as we mentioned, there's one big wide new release from Sony. Again, they came in with a wide new release with Gran Turismo last weekend. This weekend, it's the Equalizer 3, which I actually have been seeing a lot of marketing for over in uh, the week zero games in college football on ESPN. Equalizer 3 was all over 
that ESPN programming. It's great to see that. Let's start with the holdovers, Sean. Coming off of National Cinema Day weekend, what do you expect every title that's in the market to perform? Yeah, it'll be interesting this year because we're we're going into Labor Day weekend. So Sunday will again be inflated compared to what it typically would be. Coming off of National Cinema Day will make things a little little more volatile to look at because obviously there won't be $4 tickets. But we will see, I would say, probably again, family films will benefit over the weekend. Something like Ninja Turtles, Blue Beetle, nothing that Equalizer is really going after. I would probably say Equalizer has the clear shot at the top spot, even though there's been a lot of discussion about how Barbie might continue to hold going into the weekend. So looking at you know most of these holdovers, it's interesting timing, and I almost really kind of see the strategy of National Cinema Day landing before Labor Day is very intentional to help give the end of summer back-to-back weekends some fair holds when there just weren't enough releases to, to balance out that late schedule. And we have to look at this last frame of what we usually consider the summer box office. If we consider summer box office beginning in the first weekend of May, ending after Labor Day weekend, we look at the total numbers. It looks like it's going to be the first summer season since the pandemic where we go back to $4 billion in domestic box office for a summer. Now, there's been hits. There's been misses. Overall, Sean, coming into this final frame of the summer, what's your grade for this season at the box office? It's a little bit on a curve, but I would say Barbie and Oppenheimer really helped elevate it back to at least A minus status, you know, maybe at times A status, given that we did hit the four billion mark this year. A lot of those franchise films that underperformed ended up being counterbalanced by something like Oppenheimer doing 300 million, the kind of number we honestly would have expected for either Indiana Jones or Mission Impossible or The Flash, and none of them hit that. So at the end of the day, it's it's been a good summer. I would probably argue stronger than, than last year, not even just in terms of numbers, but in terms of quality. Even a lot of these films that underperformed at the box office have had pretty solid reception and audience scores. So that's that's always a good takeaway because even when the numbers aren't quite up to expectations, I think good movies and goodwill from audiences has a spillover effect into the future. And it's the first time on the schedule that I think we can all agree it really felt like there was a diverse and consistent slate coming out the theaters. I think that's a big reason why we're able to match one of those benchmarks from pre-pandemic. Of course, looking at Q3, Q4 with the actor strike, the writer strike, that might not be coming up. Unfortunately, we've got another round of release date changes. Jesse, we got an email from Warner Brothers last week, right after last week's episode went up online. Could you go over those big changes here on the schedule? Sure. Well, the big one is Dune Part 2, the most anticipated film of the year for our frequent podcast co-host Russ Fisher, is moving from uh, early November about five months to March of next year, March of 2024. Then the film that was originally scheduled for that date, which was the new Godzilla versus Kong film called The New Empire, that's moving about a month from March of next year to April of next year. And then finally, the new animated Lord of the Rings movie is moving from April of next year to December. Now, what's interesting about that one is that keeps it in line with the month in which all three prior Lord of the Rings films and all three prior Hobbit films were released. So people had originally thought it was interesting that Lord of the Rings for the first time was picking a different month other than December in which to release a film in the franchise. But turns out, nope, they're releasing in December after all, December 2024. 
Sean, of course, this schedule change is uh, not that great for exhibition. This is now the second big title to move out of the fourth quarter with Sony announcing the Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel, leaving its original December spot. What does Dune Part 2 leaving 2023 entirely mean for that Q4 forecast? It's uh yeah, I mean between that and Craven and and Ghostbusters, really these are these are three movies that could have easily added up to, you know, close to five hundred million dollars and just domestically. So the impact is is pretty significant, I would say at this point. It's very intriguing to me, not surprising necessarily that most of these movies have been from Warner Brothers. I think Barbie caught everybody by surprise, even Warner, and looking at their bottom line for the year, it, it became more and more obvious that that having Dune toward the back end of the season, even though it had a great window for its IMAX run, which is kind of the head scratcher here because now it moves into a much more competitive season next spring. It just, you know, I think it looks more and more, not only are they responding to the strikes, but they're also responding to the fact that Barbie has, has boosted their bottom line for the year. Unfortunately, like you mentioned, that doesn't mean a lot to exhibitors who wanted that foot traffic in November. So, you know, the, the fingers crossed, I think takeaway here is, Number one, hopefully this doesn't trigger other studios to make big moves. Disney's Marvels is is kind of the next big one in, in the conversation. I think the glass half full way to look at that is now it has a window to open an IMAX and open in early November. But at one point we were maybe looking to a point where getting to nine point three, nine point five billion for the year yeah, was possible after Barbenheimer. Now. Yeah. We're, we're backing away from that now. That's not going to happen now. Are we back in, in the absolute high spot being nine billion, or are you getting that a little bit lower? I would think so. And, and even that's teetering on the optimistic uh, range at this point. And let's talk about some of these other titles that were also moved uh, here on the schedule. Godzilla, Kong, the new empire. It's Godzilla times Kong, Godzilla X Kong. Who won the first fight? Because I haven't seen a single one of these movies from Warner Brothers. Uh, did Godzilla get the best? Was it split decision? What, where, where do we end up here? I, I believe, I believe, Split I believe exhibition one. <laughs> I'm not even that sure. Like, I think the last one was, wasn't that the, the one released like in the middle of the pandemic, like February 21? That was the first $100 million earning movie. Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah, you're right. The exhibition did win. But in terms of like the action on the screen, Sean, did you watch this? How, how did it end up? Who won? I did. Yeah. That was like one of those moments I was way more excited to see that movie than I maybe ordinarily would have been just because it was like this big, you know, action movie coming out right as vaccines were available and we were starting to feel a little safer. Yeah. I, I don't know. I felt like it was in the end, you know, spoiler alert, but it was kind of a tie, but various points throughout the movie, each one got their punches in. That's for sure. Are they friends again? Is that like, is X Kong like they, like together they build a new empire or they fight for the new empire? It's a very delicate friendship. Yeah. If it's a delicate friendship, it's not getting sold here. I have, again, no clue what you're supposed to sell me here with Godzilla times Kong equals the new empire. Anyway, that's coming out in April. So that'll be a, a fun movie for the late spring. And then we've got an animated Lord of the Rings. Sean, I know you're a big fan of the series. We had a trilogy that I think is going to be historically remembered. Then you've got a cash grab trilogy. That's a little cynical to call it, but come on, a three and a half hour adaptation times three of like a hundred page book on the Hobbit side. Uh, yikes. But now you've got a TV show that no one's watching on Amazon streaming service, and you've got an animated movie coming out from Warner Brothers. Where's this Lord of the Rings IP for fans right now? And do you think it can cross over to mainstream audiences? You know, I think there's always that potential, especially in the animation realm, which we're, we're seeing a lot of a lot of changes in terms of what audiences are looking for. You know, the era of Pixar domination has 
has kind of gone by the wayside. We're now seeing not just illumination, but entire animation styles gaining new popularity with that very, very natural graphic novel looking of Ninja Turtles and Spider-Verse. So that, you know, that gives, I think, War of the Rohirrim kind of an interesting leg up. The question is kind of what you were alluding to. Will it branch out beyond that core fan base of, of fantasy fans? Or is it really going to kind of be in somewhat of a niche, you know, a, a very mainstream niche, not to be, uh, you know, kind of kind of counterproductive in terms of labeling it, but something like Dungeons and Dragons, which was a hit commercially, but still mainly appealed to a lot of fans of the game. I think that's maybe one of the more relevant comps for something like this, but we'll see. I mean, we really we haven't seen anything from this movie yet. It'll be fascinating to, to get an early taste of marketing next year. You just answered one of my questions, how to pronounce the word Rohirrim. Mm. Ro- Ro- Give me one more time. Come on. Real hear him. There we go. Uh, yeah, they, titles, man. I keep on complaining of this. We're going to face that same problem in a year when we have to pronounce the subtitle oh, for the no. new Joker. Oh, movie. yes. Well, yeah, that will we'll, be that yeah. will be fun. We'll bring in Romeo Duchenne from Box Office France to, to help us with that one. But now looking over at this weekend, let's go into that weekend box office forecast. How things look for the Equalizer 3 opening and wide release. Sean, what's the range for this movie? And what's the background of these movies' financial performance uh, with Equalizer 1 and Equalizer 2 coming out for Sony? Yeah, remarkably consistent performances across the first two movies spread out by four years, which is even more impressive to some extent. Usually two to three year gaps are kind of the max before you you start seeing maybe some audience interest, you know, kind of wash away. Opening in mid 30s to finishing in the over 100 million domestic in the case of the first two films. I would expect a little bit of regression for this third one just because that audience is getting older. This is the first one in the franchise to come out after the pandemic. So we're kind of having that conversation again with with regard to this particular movie. But it's also a Labor Day weekend. And you know, the bar is is not particularly high. The, the, the second highest Labor Day opening of all time is still the 2007 Halloween with 31 million behind Shang-Chi two years ago. So I think Equalizer 3 can can easily get close to that conversation for a pretty solid opening, even if it's not quite at the level of his predecessors. And it'll have to compete with week one of the college football season. I'm really excited. I know we talk way too much about sports in this movie podcast, but I hadn't watched a single college football game in like a decade. Now that I don't leave the house, that's all I do. I just watch sports and like the Criterion channel on a loop. Sean, do you think that's going to be a bigger impact now that we don't have actors going out there? We don't have writer-directors going out there and giving press. The fact that you've got the NFL coming back on, NBA, college, soccer, all these sports leagues have this media presence coming out. And if you don't have that push to drive people back into theaters, how is that going to play out admissions-wise? Yeah, each film is a little different. I, I think you, you mentioned Equalizer 3 has had a lot of promos during the sporting events. I think I think that's very smart. I would expect Expendables 4 to have a, a similar round of, of promotional window in a, a few weeks for its mid-September release. The Creator, another male-driven film and later in the month. It's a positive, I think, that we're seeing either the franchise films opening in September that already have some built-in awareness, with the exception of The Creator, obviously an original film. The Nun 2 as horror movies go, usually not quite as reliant on that press circuit. So in the short term, you know, this looks like a a pretty solid September, especially compared to last year when not much opened other than the woman King and don't worry, darling. So, but it is fair to bring up also as, as football season, major league baseball playoffs start to ramp up. Some of these male driven titles 
it could be negatively affected, but hopefully there will be that balancing act in terms of, you know, getting out of the summer. This will be a little window where some of these films can at least hit expectations. Maybe not a lot of, not a lot of expectation to overperform in most cases. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. And now going on to our feature segment, we've got Equalizer 3 director Antoine Fuqua joining us to talk about the latest entry in this franchise after the break. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with the Equalizer 3 director Antoine Fuqua. A heads up to our listeners and an apology. This interview was conducted over speakerphone, unfortunately. So the audio quality on Antoine Fuqua's end isn't the most ideal. He was putting the finishing touches on the movie. So we appreciate him taking the time to speak with us. But let's get right in here to the first question that I had with Antoine Fuqua going over to the connection to the original show, The Equalizer, which originally ran as a television series in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, you know, as a kid, I, I used to watch Equalizer, you know, back then. And it, it was, you know, I didn't intellectualize it. I just always, I saw a rich guy telling me can't lie or helping people, you know, and there was never a real reason why, you know, which I found interesting. It was just a, a man who decided to help those who couldn't help themselves. And it's just been a running theme in my life, I think, with TV shows and, and movies, you know, The Magnificent Seven, you know, of course, Charles Seven Samurai, those same characters with that moral compass, that certain virtue to protect those who can't protect themselves. I've always been attracted to. Now, the Equalizer series is known primarily for Antoine Fuqua's collaboration with star Denzel Washington, and not only crafting the films, but also crafting that character. Here, the director talks a little bit about what came together, what elements brought together this creation of what seems to be a callback to the Western heroes of yesteryears. All the inspirations that came into bringing that Robert McCall protagonist played by Denzel Washington in these films. It was really just making a grounded character. Obviously, Denzel Washington is an amazing actor, one of the, one of the great actors of our time. You know, in, in order to make it interesting for both of us, it was to make a character that you can relate to. It's a working man's hero, you know. He's not fancy in any way. doesn't really want to do the violence. It's not something he relishes in. It's something that's necessary. Uh, he always tries to give him a chance. And I think that the journey, we, we always focus on just the character and who, and who he is and how he functions. Just, it was never any prototype, per se. The closest to him, for me, was the samurai. You know, that room. And that's what I would always sort of lean on. And Dundell would have to tell you himself as an actor what, what he uh, focused on. But we talked a lot about just the human qualities of it, just a normal guy who's lonely. And, you know, a lot of his internal struggles, we don't deal with much except for his wife. You see that he's missing her. And he has one friend, which is Susan, Melissa Leo's character. A lot of it about him is a mystery, and you only learn about him by his actions, which is something I learned from Sidney Lamette when I got to spend time with Sidney Lamette. You know, it's Denzel Washington. So Denzel is an amazing actor. You learn what you need to know about him through his actions. And, and that's really what we're focused on. A lot of it was from the... Foreign films in the 70s, really, it was, it was 
I remember talking to Mara when I first did the first one, and it was a lot of stillness, you know, and and and, and letting it letting it breathe a little bit, right? Not over covering the scenes, except within the action, you know, the movement within the action, the ballet of that was always sort of designed that way. But a lot of the films from the '70s, a lot of the films, you know, that took their time, didn't rush the characters, whether too cutty is where a lot of the inspiration came from. When I first read it, I thought, you know, if this was a foreign film, what would it feel like? Without the big studio, without the money behind it, just focused on character, what would it feel like? You know, and that's sort of where it began. And now, you know, I look back and, you know, again, I look at some of Sydney's films, just pacing-wise, I look at some of the Scorsese early films, of course, and it was always the 70s to me. It was, you know, like the, the Alan Delon movies, you know, free films. He kind of reminded me of uh, the Samurai, you know, that kind of slow burn pacing and characters as it unfolded. Those are the things that inspired me, you know, was to not be so fancy, not be so fast paced, sort of let it be a slow burn. So when the violence happens, it's more explosive. Those films took their time and they were, you know, they were, they were, they were character driven. The action is secondary to the character, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and even in the action, it was based on that character. It's not sort of random action for action. It's how he would do it, right? It's the guy in the Russian tea room in the first one where he he punished him for doing that to a young girl. Mm -hmm. He said, I offered you the money. Because he killed him so the guy would bleed out. So he could suffer it. The guy suffocated on his own blood, which is vicious. But you can see how violent he can be. And... It was normally when someone did something really heinous to someone. And like the guy with the corkscrew through the chin. Right. You know, those sort of things come out of character, not just because they were like, you know, cool moments. It was like he had that darkness in him that would come out. And certain individuals, when they didn't take his offer to do the right thing, paid a heavy price for it. That's how we always approach the action. And in this third installment of the series, we see Robert McCall's character, played by Denzel Washington, enjoying a retirement in Italy. But of course, something goes wrong. He goes back into doing what he does best. I asked Antoine Fuqua on what were the changes to this storyline? What was it about the Equalizer 3 that saw an evolution in the character that put him in different predicaments and situations that would make it fresh as a film for an audience to enjoy? Well, this one is more, really more about him, you know, personal, much more personal because the other ones are, you know, it's more about him in a play and these particular characters that he's focused on. In this one, which you'll see in the movie, how he winds up in Italy, it's more about him trying to find his upper place. You know, he's trying to find where he belongs and, and a purpose. And it's a little more personal in this one. It's really more about him and his own journey, as opposed to just the characters around him, like Ralphie and people he was trying to help. This one was more about him, much more personal. This series of films is also the only example for both Denzel Washington and director Antoine Fuqua in working on sequels. They've been involved in some of the biggest movies of the last 20, 30 years, but neither of them had ever done a sequel before this series of films. So I asked Antoine Fuqua, what was it about this world of The Equalizer that brought him back? What was it about this series of films that kept it fresh and made him want to return to this world? The people, because 
you know, when, when me and Denzel first worked together, obviously on training day, that movie was so successful, even though, you know, Academy Award and all that stuff. That's all people would say to us, oh man, you know, training day, training day, training day. And then eventually when we did Equalizer, we were just focused on just doing one movie. We didn't think about it as a franchise. You know, you would go, I would go places, I would get in a car somewhere, and someone would say, man, you know what my favorite movie of yours is? And I was like, what, Training Day? And they would go, man, Equalizer. You gonna make another one? Like, <laughs> they love what call. You know, Doorman, just anywhere. People would always talk about that character. And I, and I think that's what is most important, that the audience wanted to see more of McCall. You know, that's what brought me back into it. It was so many people that kept bringing up McCall to me. You know, it used to be just training day, then it was the equalizer, which was interesting, you know, because <laughs> training day, he won an Academy Award for And to close up our conversation, I asked the director, what was it about the movie-going experience that touched him so much as an artist, as a filmmaker? What was it about having the opportunity to go in with a big screen experience of his own through these Equalizer movies that made it so special? It means everything. I mean, I, that's why I got into the business, you know? I, I still go to the movies, you know, I'm a, I'm a moviegoer. I go to movies, I don't even watch my own movies back when I see the, my cuts in the movie. Every cut, I get popcorn and coke and I watch it in, in the movie theater, you know? There's nothing like that experience, especially the collective experience with other people because the magic of a movie is seeing how, how it feels with other people. I mean, as a director, you know, I'm an editing bay, you know, I'm editor. It's a lonely place, right? You're just in there, you live in your world, and then you put it in front of an audience and it's just, there's a magic that happens. I mean, it's a collective experience. It's, it's spiritual, and it's hard to explain it, but I've been there so many times now where I sit there and I'm just like, there's nothing like it. And the, and the film is different, you know? The movie, it, it's different. Even from, as a filmmaker, you know, no matter what you intended to make, the audience has their own experiences, and they bring it to the theater. And, you know, that's the only place you can get that, that feeling, this perfect stranger sitting next to you having the same reactions or emotions you're having or same thrills you're having at the same time. And, and it's great to hear the laughter or the, you know, the gas. It's just, you know, it's what it's all about. Ultimately, it's what it's all about, that experience. And there's nothing like it. And, you know, it's, um, the streamers are great because you don't get to, there's filmmakers I get to see now that I wouldn't get to see, you know, foreign filmmakers, all different filmmakers. It's great because it's hard to sometimes get movies made with a major studio. But when you go to the movie theater and you sit there and you get your coke and your popcorn and the smell and the people and they settle in and the lights go down, it's fucking magic. And that was Antoine Fuqua, the director of The Equalizer 3, joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Earlier in this episode, you heard from my colleagues Chad Kennark, Jesse Rifkin, and Sean Robbins. We will be back next week with another episode of the Box Office Podcast. Episodes drop every Thursday. This show is a collaboration between Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Report Edit Podcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.